Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. As the GOP plows ahead with another round of budget exploding tax cuts for the rich. Yep, talking about this right now, let's... Let's add another half a trillion dollars to the uh, to the budget deficit. We got to make it really big, right? We've we've got to give as much government money away to the billionaire class as we possibly can, so that a they can recycle it back to us in the form of campaign contributions, and b we can use this as an excuse to cut Social Security and Medicare. This is now confirmed. Larry Kudlow said on Monday that the White House will push for cuts to life-saving safety net programs like Medicare and Social Security if the Republicans retain control of Congress. Topher Spiro at the Center for American Progress said, believe them when they say they're coming after Medicaid and Social Security. This election is the last chance to stop them. When asked if uh, Social Security and Medicare would be targeted for reform, Kudlow said, Everyone will look at that, probably next year. Right. This is the two Santa Claus theory that Jude Wininski laid out for Republicans back in the 70s, that Ronald Reagan made basically the official core of his form of governance, which is when a Republican is in office, behave like Santa Claus, spend money like a drunken sailor, borrow and spend as much money as you possibly can. Number one, all that spending will juice the economy. And number two, all that borrowing will give you something to scream about when a Democrat comes into office. And sure enough, along came Bill Clinton, and it was like, oh, my God, look at the deficit, look at the debt. And Bill Clinton you know, had a balanced budget. But still, there's so much debt. Oh, my God, we've got to kill welfare as we know it. You know, and this, this hobby horse was, you know, this was Newt Gingrich's hobby horse, right? This is the Republicans doing exactly what Jude Wininski recommended in 1977. When Democrats are in charge, you get them to shoot their own Santa Claus. You get them to kill off their own programs. And Bill Clinton went after the Great Society and cut back all those programs that Lyndon Johnson had used to dramatically cut poverty in this country. And poverty's been going back up ever since then. And I shouldn't, you know, I don't mean to blame this on Bill Clinton. It was, obviously, it was the, the Republicans in Congress. They, they controlled Congress at that point who pushed all this through. Clinton just signed the paperwork and, and bragged that he had ended welfare as we know it. Looking back in retrospect, not such a good thing. And during good times, like, you know, in the 90s when the economy is really kind of in a bubble, rolling along the tech bubble and all this other stuff, you can cut back those programs and everybody says, yeah, so what? Doesn't affect me. And then, you know, the debt explosion blows up in our face, or the debt bubble blows up in our face, and here we are. And now you've got Trump putting forward, on the one hand, the lie that, look out, those Democrats are coming for your Medicare and Social Security, when the fact of the matter is that Republicans have opposed Medicare and Social Security and Medicaid and, and all other pro programs for everybody from, you know, young kids to older people for the length of the existence of the party for all practical purposes, at least the modern party. And this year's budget, the 2018-2019 budget, that Donald Trump himself, along with Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell, proposed and introduced, cuts $1.7 trillion out of social safety net programs, including hundreds of billions of dollars being cut out of Medicare and Social Security. So don't listen to what he says, listen to what he, you know, watch what he does. 
because what Trump, this is the second year in a row that Trump has proposed massive cuts to Social Security and Medicare. And if the Republicans can hold on to the House and Senate, they're going to do it. Meanwhile, we see this extraordinary link between the increase in despaired deaths in counties that voted for Donald Trump and the lack of despaired deaths in the counties that didn't. Now, there's this debate about why did Donald Trump get elected? Why did white working class people vote for him? And I'm going to get to that in just a second. But one of the things that we do know is that despair is pretty bad in those in those 3,112 counties that these people looked at. This was a Columbia University study published in the Journal of Internal Medicine this week. What they found is that there's an alarming link between the increase in despair deaths. These are deaths from drug overdoses, alcohol and suicide. An alarming link between an increase in despair deaths and counties that voted for Trump. In the study, they said, uh, study leader Lee Goldman, chief executive of Columbia University's Irvine Medical Center, said, although life expectancy is increasing in many parts of the county, especially in urban areas, we're not seeing nearly the same gains in rural and middle America. We shouldn't underestimate the degree to which some portions of the country have been left behind in terms of their health. And they looked at all these counties and the deaths caused by alcohol, drugs and suicide was two and a half times higher in 2016 in those counties. They suggest possible improvements in life expectancy in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin could have shifted votes to Secretary Clinton. I'm not sure because this is in The Intercept by Mehdi Hassan. Time to kill the zombie argument. It's not economic distress that drove white people to vote for Trump. Economic distress is part of the equation, but the main part of the equation on a two to one margin was racial anxiety or the fear of being displaced culturally and socially. In other words, brown people come in for my job, black people come in for my job, somebody from another race or country might wanna marry my sister or my wife or daughter, you know, fill in the blanks. I mean, this is the big question. Why do white working class men vote for Donald Trump. The study says this whole thing about economic anxiety, complete myth. They say it has more to do with cultural anxiety and racial resentment. And then they listen to Donald Trump slamming black athletes as, quote, sons of the B word, or Elizabeth Warren as, quote, Pocahontas in front of cheering crowds. And you get it. He's talking about race. There have been four different studies on this now. The first was published May of this year, or May of last year, in the Atlantic Magazine. It was done by Public Religion Research Institute, PRRI. And what they found was that financially troubled voters in white working class were much more likely to prefer Clinton to Trump. So people who were having economic problems, people whose mortgages were underwater, people who were in dead-end jobs, people who just lost their jobs, they voted for Clinton over Trump, substantially. So who voted for Trump? The study says, quote, it was cultural anxiety, feeling like a stranger in America, supporting the deportation of immigrants, hesitating about educational investment. Those things were the best predictors for support for Trump. White working class voters who expressed fears of cultural displacement were three and a half times more likely to vote for Trump than those who didn't share those fears. That's the first study. The second study was published in January this year. It was done by three Amherst University political scientists. And they asked the question, what caused whites without college degrees to provide substantially more support to Donald Trump than whites with college degrees? This is right from the study. This is a survey of 5,500 American adults. We found that racism and sexism were strongly associated with vote choice in 2016, even after accounting for partisanship, ideology, and other standard factors. These factors were more important in 2016 than in 2012. Now, I would say that was because we just, in 2016, we had just finished eight years of a black president and the unrelenting outrage poured upon him by Fox so-called news, right-wing hate radio, et cetera. Anyhow, back to the study, suggesting that the explicitly racial and gendered rhetoric of the 2016 campaign served to activate these attitudes in the minds of many voters. Indeed, attitude toward racism and sexism account for about two-thirds of the education gap in vote choices in 2016. Third study, Stanford University, April. This was published in the Proceeding of the National Academies of Sciences. Living in an area with a high median income positively predicted Republican vote choice to a greater extent in 2016. 
In other words, the wealthier you were, the more likely you voted for Donald Trump. And those people working with a worsening personal financial situation, worsening, drove working class voters into the welcoming arms of billionaire property mogul Donald Trump. The major thing, though, that found that people would vote for Trump were those who felt whites were discriminated against more than blacks, a familiar trope from Fox News, who felt that Christians were discriminated against more than Muslims, another familiar trope you'll see on Fox News, and who believe men are discriminated against more than women. Those people who share those three beliefs almost consistently voted for Donald Trump. And then the latest study that was just published co-authored by George Washington University political scientist John Sides, found that the prevailing narrative of the 2016 election focused heavily, quote, on the economic concerns of America, especially the white working class. That is flawed and misplaced. He said, what, this is from the study, what was distinct about voter behavior in 2016 was not the outside role of economic anxiety, but attitudes about race and ethnicity, which were more strongly related to how people voted. Trump voters in 2016 do not report more economic distress than do Clinton voters. If anything, the opposite is true. The political implications of economic distress are mostly negative for President Trump. So it's not the, it wasn't the economy stupid. It was race stupid that got Donald Trump elected, according to these studies. This is pretty important stuff that, you know, we need to be paying attention to and taking seriously. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Our podcasts are supported by advertising, and I'm really pleased that Quip is advertising with our program because they've got an amazing product. When was the last time you replaced your toothbrush? Do you always brush twice a day for a full two minutes? You know, these are important habits that have a huge impact on your health. And I grew up with so many misunderstandings about brushing my teeth that I, you know, that frankly, I didn't learn about until I got my Quip electric toothbrush. And they're the ones who told me, you only need a little tiny dot of toothpaste, for example. And you don't need to scrub the crap out of your mouth. You just two minutes gently with a toothbrush twice a day. You don't need to do it three times a day. You don't need to get hysterical about it. My OCD had kicked in back when I was a teenager around brushing my teeth. And I think I frankly damaged my gums going nuts with all this electric toothbrushes and stuff. Quip is a really great new electric toothbrush that's gentle and really works. It fixes those problems. It does this with a lightweight and sleek design, simple time vibrations, and guiding pulses to give you a perfect two-minute clean. Bulkier electric brushes have awkward charging stands, modes you don't need. They cost five times as much. And here's the amazing thing. Quip starts at just $25. And you can get brush head refills automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended three-month schedule for only five bucks. And shipping is free. Quip has been featured in GQ, Oprah's O-List, and Time Magazine named it one of the best inventions of the year. I agree. Go to getquip.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M, right now get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash Tom. It's spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash T-H-O-M. And when you do, you're also supporting our program and our podcast. Thank you. Tom Harbin here with you. The final point I want to make, not only with regard to gutting the Social Security, Medicare, the social safety net, things like that, this is killing America. I mean, it's literally killing American citizens, as, as you heard my, my talking about the despaired deaths. And if, in fact, the people who voted for Donald Trump did so because he was using racist and sexist language, then if Tom Arnold is actually able to roll out a tape of Donald Trump using the N-word in, in a pejorative way on The Apprentice, it's probably going to help him with his base, right? So what do we do about this? I mean, how, how do you deal with a guy who can't be shamed? I mean, you know, who, who thinks Nazis are very fine people. It's, uh, it gets very strange. Miriam in Bellevue, Washington. Hey, Miriam, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Sure. I am originally from Kazakhstan. I grew up there and then uh, moved here, got married, and uh, being biracial, I've been experiencing different attitudes from different people depending how they perceive me. Mm. I'm half European, half Asian. Mm. Sometimes people take me as Hispanic, and it depends how they perceive me. They treat me differently. Hmm. So, um, for example, I, well, at first they kind of like distant and kind of cold reception. Mm-hmm. And then I start speaking, they see that I don't have the Hispanic accent. Mm-hmm. So they kind of like 
oh, she's kind of like with accent, like more like a white type of accent. Mm. They start like being more open and talking to me more and uh, sharing their life with me more kind of thing. Yeah. And also, I have a child with autism and I also experienced uh, discrimination because of being a foreigner on her as well. Hmm. So we had a neighbor who had some mental problems and she decided to call us uh, as if we stole the bicycle from her daughter. And I was trying to explain to her that it was not true and uh, talk nice to her, but she was escalating so and uh, told me to call the police. So I called the police, but the police, I was trying to explain the situation, what happened, but they took the side of her because she doesn't have an accent. Mm. So I was trying to explain that I have documents to prove that it's our bike uh, because I purchased it online Mm. and I have the receipts and there is a print, like a code number on the bike that matches the receipt. Right. Luckily, I had that bought online. So you were able to prove it. But the bottom line here, Miriam, is that you're saying that your experience of living in the United States Mm -hmm. is that race is a big factor in in just your day-to-day quality of life. Right. Yeah, Yeah. it it impacts not only me, but my child who was born here and uh, her her dad is American. Mm. And I see that kind of impacting her life as well. Yeah. Okay. Miriam, thank you for for the confirmation and for sharing your story with us. I appreciate it. Uh, Edgar in Los Angeles, listening on KPFK. Hey, Edgar, what's up? Hey, Tom, a long-time listener, first-time caller. Uh, Yeah, with the the question in regards to uh, will race carry the the GOP over, uh, I think it plays in in their favor in the American psyche because uh, being an immigrant from Nicaragua, uh, me and my family migrated here, uh, because of the war that was going on in the 80s. I learned here in America, there's a propensity just to really fear the other, mm-hmm. and, and uh, either through the media, propaganda, and the way the whole uh, capital system is set up, is that any any mention of, of, of another is just automatically triggers, it's almost like an instinctual reaction to, to fear, to uh, hate, dislike, and the Trump presidency encapsulated that, uh, I think, perfectly. Um, although I would say in the primary, he, he did play that populist uh, uh, role really well because he did hit, uh, touch on things that uh, Clinton uh, uh, didn't want to touch because of her establishment uh, record uh, as far as talking against the wars and the, some of the wars that the United States have been on have been just crazy. That the, uh, the poor people here are not being well, Clinton, Clinton criticized the wars and apologized for her Iraq vote. Um, but, but, you know, I, I get your point. And, 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 and he also lied. I mean, you know, he said, well, I'm going to get everybody in the country health care and it'll be cheaper than Obamacare. I'm going to protect your Social Security and Medicare. I'm going to bring the jobs back. Uh, you know, every single one of these things were lies. And, right. and, and right. you know, I, I mean, he's not even it, the tariff policy, which is something with which I agree, is not being done right. He's using he's doing it by presidential directive using the uh, the rubric of national security, which means that it's going to go away in a couple of years. Nobody is going to build a factory in the United States, uh, you know, because of these tariffs, because they're 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 not right. long term or permanent. I mean, it's just a, the whole thing is pathetic he the way he's perfect, he's doing this. Snake uh, oil salesman. But I think, uh, you know, this is the failing of the Democratic Party because he was uh, he played on those uh, real economic anxiety. Uh, the voters had, uh, especially going against the TPP. Uh, but yeah, but, but principally, yes, and he got votes for that. You know, and there are some good Democrats, as you know, Sherrod Brown and Bernie Sanders out there going, yeah, we need a tariff-based trade policy. We need a rational trade policy, but not one done by executive order. This is just being done the wrong way. And of course, on those other things, Trump simply lied. Our book today is Taking Bullets, Terrorism and Black Life in 21st Century America, Confronting White Nationalism, Supremacy, Privilege, Brutocracy, and Oligarchy, A Poet's Representation and Challenge by Haki R. Uh, Madhuburi. He writes, 
Uh, this is from the chapter, page 27, the chapter, Terror in the Midst of Prayer and Empire. In our perpetual state of national mourning, where our eyes are watered out and our hearts cease to heal at the rate the Creator meant them to, we hold hands in profound silence as we remember the Mother Emanuel Nine of Charleston, South Carolina, those nine mothers, fathers, sisters, and brothers. Even before burying, before black earth covered their caskets, too many ministers, media pundits, and plain white and black folks downgraded the terror that quickened their deaths of our finest in this land to the mental illness and race hatred, in quotes, of a single young white man. He may have acted alone, but he was not alone in his thinking, encouragement, gathering of arms, warped consciousness, confirmation, or ahistorical views, and yeses from the millions in the nation who proudly wear and display the Confederate flag above their hearts and fly it in all of its traitorous glory over a state capitol and other institutions. Again, we find ourselves at war with history and culture, entertaining another call for a national conversation on race and a president weary of trying to make sense of and comfort the grief-stricken nation with words in the highest office of the land. This was written while Obama was president. These are the facts, not an opinion or the ignorant ranting of compromised preachers and television pundits. A 21-year-old white man, a citizen of South Carolina, walked into the sacred and spiritual home of the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church of Charleston, the historic home of black liberation fighter Denmark Vesey, and fatally killed nine of its members, including the pastor, during Bible study. This was a pure act of domestic terrorism. A modern-day lynching by a young white nationalist who coolly and calmly assassinated nine black members of Mother Emanuel. Domestic violence and acts of terrorism are on the rise in the United States, as detailed by Charles Kurzman and Daniel Shanzer in their New York Times op-ed, The Other Threat, where they state that, quote, the main terrorist threat in the United States is not from violent Muslim extremists, but from right-wing extremists, end quote. In their national research, local police agencies across the country identified, quote, the militias, neo-Nazis, and sovereign citizens as the major threat the nation faces in regard to extremism, end quote. All of this is homegrown with internal connections, excuse me, international connections. Morris Dees and J. Richard Cohen of the Southern Poverty Law Center also writes in the New York Times, uh, article Racists Without Borders, that, quote, Americans tend to view attacks like the mass murder in Charleston as isolated hate crimes, the work of a deranged racist or a group of zealots lashing out in anger unconnected to a broader movement. This view we can no longer afford to indulge. When, according to survivors, Mr. Roof told the victims at the prayer meeting that black people were, quote, taking over the country, he was expressing sentiments that unite white nationalists from the United States and Canada to Europe, Australia, and New Zealand. Unlike those of the civil rights era, whose main goal was to maintain Jim Crow in the American South, today's white supremacists don't see borders. They see a white tribe under attack by people of color across the globe. The end of white rule in Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, and South Africa, they believe, foreshadowed an apocalyptic future for all white people, a white genocide that must be stopped before it's too late. End of quote. The internationalization of terrorism is not a foreign theory in today's social media world. Dees and Cohen will be speaking at a conference in Budapest about this transnational white supremacism that is emerging as the world grows more connected technologically. The message of white genocide is spreading. Also, David J. Whitaker's terrorism, understanding the global threat, gives another view. Clearly, our rush to forgive this mass murderer within 96 hours of this supreme tragedy is misguided, anti-human and does not allow for properly grieving the fallen. As perfectly scripted, displaying the permanent effectiveness of Christian acculturation on the Sunday, the Sunday, June 21st, 2015 morning services of Mother Emanuel Church, the black Christians out-Christianed their white brothers and sisters. Before the morning sermon, the presiding elder, Reverend Norvell Goff Sr., found it necessary to thank the local, state, and federal law enforcement agencies for, for doing their job. He also stated, Quote, a lot of folks expected us to do something strange and break out in a riot. Well, they just don't know us. We are people of faith, end quote. I find this statement inappropriate, insensitive, and ahistorical, implying 
whether he meant it or not, that the recent uprising and rebellions in Ferguson, New York, Cleveland, and other parts of the nation were riots and did not include black people of faith, and that somehow they were strange in their social, political, and economic activism. Informed people do not riot against injustice or white terrorism. They study, organize, and strategically struggle at all levels, in the streets, on the campus, in front of the White House, and in corporate boardrooms. Dylan Roof stated his stated intentions were to start a race war, and informed black leadership understands that we cannot pray this away or appeal to any law enforcement agency that all across the country, including Charleston, has been seriously compromised. To label black reaction to murder, terrorism, deep unemployment, substandard housing, etc., is as riotous to blame the victim. The book Taking Bullets. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Don in Portland, Oregon. Oh, it's good to talk to you, neighbor. Thank you. I love the calls you've gotten this morning, but I wanted to address the pathology that's behind the racism and all the other stuff. And I think of it as patriarchal culture, mm-hmm. the, uh, the boss and the slave owner, the person who pays as least as possible, and they're extractive and they're dominators. Mm-hmm. Now, the things that the patriarch can't stand are sexual deviation and abortion because it's his fetus. Right. So I think these are old historic memes in that sense. And so these white man's burden, which is killing their souls, is the problem. That, you know, they've been trained to do this, given approval by church and local culture, and all of a sudden they're told they've got to go to therapy. I can see why they're feeling angry about the way history is going, but I would love to relieve them of that burden and help them become human beings. It's so much more fun. I gave up being white a while back because I had some real great experience. I was called black, even though I have the most Irish white skin you'll ever see. I don't understand. I was playing in a band in Indianapolis with all the black people, and in the second year they told me I was black and they convinced other black people that I was black. It's like crazy. Like, like you were just, like you had black parents and you were the anomalous birth kind of thing? I was the whitest guy in that band, and believe me, it's a, it's a, a negative uh, contrast. Uh, but I was told, and then Hazel, my, my band leader, convinced black people in Indianapolis that I was black. It was about how I behaved. So how did that change how you were treated, Don? Well, I realized that I, what I wanted to be was a European-American, because that's honest. Mm. And to be white is to participate in the dominating power construct where you feel if that's your identity and you are defending whiteness mm-hmm. rather than your own true ethnic background, right. then uh, it's, it's, it's strictly the power thing. And it is going to be racist, and it's going to be sexist, and it's going to be homophobic, and it's going to be imperial. Yeah, I would I would argue that these things don't just grow out of what you're defining, but they actually grow out of uh, monotheism itself. When you accept the idea that the entire universe was created by a man with a penis who is all knowing and all seeing the ultimate father figure, you are buying into a patriarchal authoritarian worldview that starts at the very largest chunk possible. Right. The creation of everything. And then oh, yeah. carries no, I, all I the way it. down to the smallest unit possible, like, you know, the family or the workplace, where, again, it's, you know, the patriarch is the guy who's in charge. The, the, yeah. the, the No, I agree. See, I'm a retired Presbyterian minister, so I do know the history of patriarchal culture. But one of yeah. the things that I look at in the, in the uh, uh, gospel is the deconstruction of patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Paul tells men to act like women. He can't say it exactly that way, but he says be mutually submissive to one another. Mm. Jesus is a great feminist. So you don't get images of patriarchy in these guys. And um, I think maybe with Paul. (laughs) But but they sure did. uh, Yeah, they sure did. writing in context, and there are a few of them to begin with. It's not just one Paul. Yeah, but they sure did change that after the Second Council of Constantinople. Anyhow, Don, thank you for the call. I love discussing religion and culture and patriarchy and he's spot on on all of it we'll be right back if you want the absolute best shirts around you have to go to ct shirts 
I want you to try them because once you do, you'll never go back to some random shirt off the shelf of a department store. Plus, CT shirts come in custom sizes, so you're not messing with ill-fitted sleeve lengths or neck sizes. It's time to step up your game and look your best. So I got you a special CT shirts deal. Three CT shirts for $99. CT shirts use the softest, most exquisite fabrics ever. Worker casual, tie or no tie, tucked or untucked. When you're wearing a CT shirt, you will look your best. So here's the deal. One CT shirt normally costs $100, but right now you'll get three CT shirts for just $99. That's 60% off. And CT shirts come with free delivery, a six-month quality guarantee, and free returns. If you hurry, $99 gets you three amazing CT shirts. So go to www.ctshirts.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. That's www.ctshirts.com slash Tom. On the line with us is Professor Jason Stanley. He is the uh, Jacob Burowski Professor of Philosophy at Yale University, the author of four books, including his latest, How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. You can tweet him at Jason in Traitor, J-A-S-O-N-I-N-T-R-A-T-O-R. Professor Stanley, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Tom. It's good to be back. Thanks for joining us. So you wrote the book, how fascism works, where are we at on the spectrum or scale of how fascistic a country is or is moving? When fascist ideology takes hold, the dominant group feels that it's being victimized by encroaching equality. Black people in seeking liberation and seeking equality are not seeking to displace white people on a hierarchy. They're just seeking equality. But what fascist politics does is it gives the dominant group the sense that equality is an enormous loss, that equality, that there's no such thing as equality, that equality is a myth, that nature prefers a hierarchy. And the only way another group could achieve equality is by displacing you and becoming dominant. Right. Yeah, yeah, it makes perfect sense. So where is the United States at? How have we changed in terms of you know, being a fascist nation, how have we changed over the last 40, 50 years? And in particular, how have we changed in the last year and a half? So my book first is about fascist politics. I think countries that get taken over by leaders who employ such politics have very different governments that result. That said, a liberal democratic culture is one that has equal respect for everyone and truth is respected because truth is central to democracy. Democracy prizes liberty and democracy prizes equality. And without truth, you're not free and you're not politically equal. Nobody thinks the citizens of North Korea are free. They've been lied to. So if you've been lied to, nobody thinks that the people in the matrix are free. If you're lied to, then you're not free. Similarly, if you don't have truth, if you don't have knowledge, then you can't speak truth to power, and all that's left is power. So this is the so dilemma that people who watch Fox News all day long have. That's right. So that's why it's important to emphasize that although fascist politics targets, in the first instance, minorities, sexual minorities, feminists, liberals, foreigners, though those are labor unions, leftists, though those are its targets, and it, its real target is the people it's directed at the supporters, because they're not free. They're being lied to. And if you're being lied to, you should actually be quite upset. Now, we have a long history of that kind of lying in our country. It underlies the treatment of black Americans, for example, all the way back to the time of slavery, lynching, mass incarceration. Think of super predator theory. These myths that black Americans were somehow like more violent or more dangerous rather than just much more economically disadvantaged. They have led to people becoming inured to being lied to. And what we see now is that spilling over the top. Of course, it didn't help that we had an Iraq with the Iraq war and the financial crisis. So what worries me now, besides the loss of a grip on reality in our national politics, what worries me now is the encroachment of a one-party state. Hannah Arendt warns about this in The Origins of Totalitarianism. She says, people get tempted by 
party over party. And what she means by that is people get tempted by loyalty to party over loyalty to a multi-party system. And when you have a minority of Americans electing a president and a minority of Americans electing the Senate, and you have a locked-in far-right, not just right, but far-right Supreme Court for generations to come, we're risking a one-party state. And that is inimical to our democracy. So I think on two dimensions, we have serious worries. We've lost democratic norms. We've lost a grip on reality. Loyalty is replacing reality. We've lost a grip on equal respect. We've normalized our fellow people being called horrible things. That's normal now. We've normalized terrific treatment of fellow human beings. So I'm concerned about both those developments. Yeah. What do we do about this? You look at Orban's Hungary or, you know, uh, the Philippines, Duterte or Erdogan in Turkey. These are countries that supposedly had vibrant, healthy, small d democratic systems and now have slid into, at the very least, oligarchy, if not outright autocracy or fascism, to use your term. How do we avoid that happening here? Well, I think I'm worried. I think we have a lot of repair of democratic norms to do. But I think that we look to groups. I think women are taking political lead right now. Fascism is strongman politics that involves somebody presenting them as a strong, macho leader. And we have a strong reprisal against that with feminist politics and women leaders. There's somewhat of a shock to the system right now about the open anti-democratic politics we're seeing. And... Perhaps now is a moment where people can go back and look at some of the fissures in our country that enabled this kind of politics to take control and maybe see that those fissures leave us vulnerable. So if Republicans and Democrats can come together and stop thinking about taking over the part of the country for their party and seeing that actually our long history of anti-black racism, our long history of patriarchy, sexism, our desire to see a strong CEO leader, large economic gaps, these leave us vulnerable to the kinds of politics we're seeing. So maybe we can have a democratic socialist coming and making some policy proposals that, that will make sense to ordinary Americans. From your lips to God's ears, Professor Jason Stanley, his new book is How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. Thank you, sir. So, uh, let's see here. Ken in Great Falls, Montana. Ken, it says you want to disagree with me. What's up? Well, with those reports, I want to disagree. It's, you know, when you look back at being racism for Trump, uh, I look back at a number of the key counties around the country that voted for him. They all voted for Obama four years earlier. And We're talking about a three is, or four point swing in, in, uh, in some cases as much as a six or seven point swing. But typically it's been a three or four point swing between the two. So that's not proof of some major trend. You know, the idea, I know these people. I'm one of them, a working man. And I've seen the jobs, you know, I've seen the construction industry decimated by crews of illegal aliens coming by. Uh, you, you bid a job for 20 bucks an hour and they come in and they pay their people maybe eight or ten. You know, no, you're absolutely right. I, you know, uh, one of my brothers worked in construction trades his whole life, and, and I saw this up close and personal. But that doesn't yeah. mean that the people with the brown skin are the ones who are the villains in this morality play no. that, that you're living through, Ken. It's the white, rich no. people who lobbied exactly. Ronald Reagan to stop enforcing our immigration laws. Prior to Reagan, we used to put employers in jail. That's why we never had an illegal immigration problem in this country prior to the 19, probably prior to 1986. But the, you know, Reagan was lobbied by the, by the so-called Main Street Republicans, the small business Republicans, and they said, we want to be able to hire people at less than minimum wage, and particularly in the meatpacking industry and particularly in the construction trades. And so Reagan said, fine, I'll stop busting people. And boom. You know, what happened was an absolutely predictable thing that happened. But your problem isn't with people of color. Your problem is with people whose skin looks just like you, who just have a hell of a lot more money than you do. Well, I, I know that's exactly it. But you see, Trump exploited that. And he said it was the color. And the, I agree. The point is, these people, they want their jobs. It's economics. It is economics. You know, you can't, you can't go back to this Clinton narrative that it's, that it's sexism, and and race not the economics we got to get back on economics that will solve so many of the problems 
Okay, well, your, your opinion is registered. It doesn't comport with three different scientific studies, but your opinion, your opinion is registered. Johnny in Lamarck, Texas. Hey, Johnny, thanks for watching Free Speech TV on your Roku box. What's up? Hey, Tom. I want to agree with the earlier female caller, the black lady from Chicago, Pam. I agree with her sentiments. Mm -hmm. It's a shame that we can't wake up more white people quicker. I think it's coming a long way too slow. But I would add to her that the Occupy movement had a lot of problems because that wasn't so much about race as it was about class and income. That's why they were attacked viciously by the police. Look what they did in, in Ducati and, well, I forgot what they call it now, Ducati Park, but they were, they were renamed by the activists then in 2011. So there's yeah. that. Yeah. No, you're, you're right. And, and the, it's like the machine reacts to anybody who tries to challenge its power, authority, and wealth. Uh, whether they're challenging it out of an economic place or out of a racial place or out of a geographic place or out of a religious place. Uh, you know, yeah, that's just the nature of, of institutions. They, they fight to protect their privilege and their power. Yeah, that's what I love about language. You just said machine, and I'm thinking maybe we need to take this machine and put it, take it from automatic and put it into a manual, take yeah. manual control of this device. This automatic car is killing us. Well, and, and that's, you know, I, I would say to the extent that the Supreme Court in the last hundred years has put the machine more and more on automatic drive by changing the rules of the game. So now it's harder and harder for people to, to start new businesses, for example, or compete. I mean, you know, yeah, yeah, you nailed it. Johnny, well said. Thank you very much for the call. Kim in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Hey, Kim, what's up? Hey, Tom. I, I follow you avidly. I think you're awesome. Um, I know people here in Oklahoma who absolutely voted for Trump because they are racist, and they liked that about his message. But I'm also absolutely certain that a great number of people voted not necessarily for Trump when they cast that Trump vote, but against Hillary Clinton. And I think that was easily foreseeable by the Democrats, and it should have been addressed long before. Now, I don't know if this is because of all of the right-wing conspiracies that were put forth or if it was because of her TPP positions or if it was whatever. I mean, uh, George Stephanopoulos was on uh, a show called The Clinton Years on uh, Frontline, PBS, and he was talking about a dial drop for Clinton just from her entering a room. You know, so this, this is something that's been known since at least the 90s. And I'm wondering, what was the purpose in putting her forth as a candidate, knowing how terribly unfavorable she was? Wow. Um, you know, that wasn't my decision. I, well, of course, yeah. I mean, it was, I, I guess, most collectively all of our decisions in that there was a primary and she did win the primary. But the but the primary as you know, ask any Bernie fan, uh, the primary was not done in a way that I think was fair. But, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton in many ways looked like a great candidate. She had been secretary of state. She did an extraordinary job. As first lady, she did an extraordinary job. There was all this right-wing noise around her. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the main baggage that she was carrying that hurt her was her husband's policies, which were mm -hmm. popular at the time and are no longer popular. The, you know, the, the, the DLC stuff, the NAFTA stuff, the, the, you know, the, the, the TPP stuff, all those things. And Trump went right after that. I just find the, the racist, racist excuse, although I absolutely believe it, because I see it around me. I hear it around me constantly. I think if we put too much weight on that sort of thing, we're ignoring the obvious. And, you know, the margins that this was won by, clearly she was the popular vote winner. Even. Yeah. Um, there, there was no mandate for Trump, and I think the numbers show that. I agree. I absolutely agree. But, you know, the asking the question, what was it that pushed him over the top, what we find over and over and over again is it was not economic anxiety. It was, in fact, the majority of the people who voted for Clinton were the ones who were economically anxious. It was, it was race and class and misogyny. Kim, thank you for the call. It's the Tom Harbin University Book Club. Today we're reading from Minority Leader, How to Lead from the Outside and Make Real Change by Stacey Abrams. This is from Chapter 1, although the introduction is fascinating, too, where she talks about Rhodes Scholarships and stuff, but this is Chapter 1. I sit in the living room, a cozy space, warm in the early summer. I'm perched on the edge of a sofa next to Valerie, the home's owner, a lovely black woman in her late 40s. Across from us, seated close together on a wide settee met for one, are her two children, a son and a daughter. Politicians rarely visit their streets, which are nestled in a poorer community in South Georgia. 
Valerie beams with pride that both her children are headed to college in the fall. David, 17, plans to study criminology. Maya, 18, her belly round with her first child, intends to become a middle school teacher. Both newly graduated from high school, Maya will give birth in mere weeks and begin college months later, an unwed teen mother. Her intended school is more than three hours north of her home, so her mother will raise her newborn baby while she starts her freshman year. Valerie speaks matter-of-factly about the coming challenge, raising a new child just as hers leaves the nest. Still, she is determined that both her children pursue college degrees that she never received. Maya, the mother-to-be, wonders how she'll do so well, how she'll do, how she'll do so far away from home and her baby. Yet in the next breath, she explains how college will be the best for her and her child. Their future success rests upon her. I've come to their home as part of my campaign for governor, so I asked Valerie what she expects of someone like me. What can I do to help make lives like hers better? In her soft voice, she replies, she just wants options for financial aid for her children. They will succeed, she says, if they can afford to stay in school. As I look around the modest home passed down through the generations, I understand both the pride and the desperation tangled in her response. She got them through and has given them the tools to carve out better lives for themselves. We chat more about the worries she's lived with all those years, our discussion turning to the crime and poverty in their neighborhood. Then I ask Valerie what she wants. At first, all I get in response is a quizzical look to suggest I need to reconsider my bid for higher office. Or that suggests. I repeat, what do you want for you? What secret dream do you have for yourself? Her confused expression turns to one of surprise. I don't know, she tells me. I've been a cashier at the Piggly Wiggly for 20 years. You must want something, I probe, something you'd like, to, you'd like to do for you. A daycare, she admits quietly. I'd like to start a daycare center for unwed mothers like my daughter, so more girls can finish school and pursue their dreams. But that ambition is beyond her. Her body language, her tone of voice, her averted gaze speak louder than her words. I press her, but she demurs with a smile. Let's just see what happens if you win the governor's job, she says. Valerie's house in South Georgia is not too different from the squat red brick house where I grew up in South Street, on South Street in Gulfport, Mississippi. An oak tree grew out in our front yard, shading the, shadowing the front sidewalk, forbidding grass to grow beneath its shade. Pink azaleas bloomed each spring from bushes that flanked the front door. Our rented house and the others set close by teemed with children, all black, all working class. We played in our postage-stamped yards, make, make, make believing the fantastical superhero exploits, cops and robbers. As we got older, we'd talk about moving to New Orleans or living in one of the mansions along the beachfront that lay less than five miles away across the railroad tracks that ran in between our neighborhood and the more wealthy environs. We dreamed of more while our parents' lives centered around survival and making it from paycheck to paycheck. Instinctively, we understood that more had to be possible, even if we didn't know what to do to get there. These imaginings, these desires are the roots of ambition. As adults, like Valerie, we tend to edit our desires until they fit our construction of who we're supposed to become. In such a world, I wouldn't dare dream of running for higher office, for mayor, governor, or president. At least for now, Valerie sees herself retiring in 20 more years from Piggly Wiggly as a cashier, rather than as a small business owner who helps the community raise its children. From our brief meeting, I could see she had the fire, albeit of a low burn, of a minority leader. She had ambition. She had vision. But she didn't have the faith, and understandably so. Whether we come from working-class neighborhoods or grow up comfortably middle-class, minorities rarely come of age explicitly thinking about what we want and how to get it. People already in power almost never have to think about whether they belong in the room, much less if they would be listened to once outside. These men, and they are usually men and typically white, do not have to grapple with low expectations based on gender or race or class. Ambition for them begins with the reminiscences of old times and older friendships or newer alliances. The ends have already been decided. Only the means are to be discussed. Most potential minority leaders feel the same lack of faith Valerie had, at least at some point in their evolution. We may not know how to get the first job, let alone make it to the big chair. We don't know how to take the leap from accepting our fates to actually changing them, and not just a little, but radically. Then there are those who simply don't know what they want. The drive to achieve burns inside, often without a clear target. We want to be something, but what that is remains hazy. Often we cannot articulate our goals because they lie just beyond the reach of who we're supposed to be. Ambition's scale is irrelevant. What holds us back is not scope, it's fear. 
And because we don't know what to call our dreams, don't know how to make them happen, or are pretty sure we'll be disappointed, we just stand still. We become a minority, we become, but becoming a minority leader demands that we embrace ambition as our due. Stacey Abrams. Welcome back. So let's uh, stick a stake in the zombie argument. Trump won because uh, there's a number of racist white people out there. And, uh, you know, quite a few of them are basically afraid. Sure, there's some economic anxiety, but the economic anxiety exacerbates the racial anxiety. It makes it worse. Meanwhile, it just continues to roll. Right. Paul LePage. Now, this was about a month ago that this happened, but Uh, The ACLU of Maine is uh, pointing out that black people and white people in Maine, even though there's so few black people in Maine, black people and white people are equally likely to be using drugs. This from medical studies. But when you look at the legal studies, black people are much more likely than white people to get arrested. Now, Could that be because the governor of the state, Paul LePage, is referring to black people as the enemy? And of course, you know, the police are paying careful attention to what he says. Here's his quote. He says, look, a bad guy is a bad guy. I don't care what color it is. When you go to war, if you know the enemy, the enemy dresses in red and you dress in blue, you shoot at red, don't you? You shoot at the enemy. You try to identify your enemy. And the enemy right now, the overwhelming majority right now coming in, are people of color or people of Hispanic origin? I just can't help that. I just can't help it. Those are the facts. Right. If you go to war, you shoot the enemy. According to the governor, this is from the ACLU, according to the governor, Maine police are nine times more likely to arrest people of color for selling drugs than white people, even though white people are just as likely to commit drug offenses. This alarming disparity in arrest raises significant concerns that Maine law enforcement is participating in unconstitutional racial profiling. Speaking of perfidy on the part of Republicans, Betsy DeVos, this from Glenn Thrush in the New York Times, after scaling back student loan regulations, administration tries to stop state regulations. Glenn Thrush writing for the New York Times, after the Education Secretary Betsy DeVos started scaling back consumer protections for student borrowers last year, six states and the District of Columbia tried to put into place laws to protect you from being ripped off by a student loan company. But now Ms. DeVos is trying to stop them. Now the Trump administration is supporting a lawsuit from the Student Loan Servicing Alliance. This is the lobbying group for the for the uh, student loan industry against D.C. creating a student loan ombudsman office. It's amazing. They're trying to shut down the city of D.C.'s efforts to protect student borrowers in the district. Because, of course, the Trump administration doesn't give a rat's ass about students or the people with the loans. They just want to make sure that the rich lenders are taken good care of. Check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by Goats for the Old Goat.com and uh, Loving What You Do, a new book by Ellen Ratner. On the line with us is Luke Vargas, the chief foreign correspondent for Talk Media News, joins us from New Headquarters in New York. You can follow him on Twitter at The Courier. Luke, uh, uh, what's going on in the world today? New news about the Trump census? Yeah, you may have remembered last year um, when Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross was testifying in front of Congress defending why it was that a citizenship question was being added to the 2020 census, a move that many analysts and most researchers at the Census Bureau believe is going to cause an undercount as sort of mixed immigration status households decide it's 
too legally risky or perceive it to be too legally risky to even fill out the census. And that will deny funding and congressional representation to states with high immigrant populations. Wilbur Ross said, look, the reason we're doing this is because, quote, the Department of Justice initiated the request for inclusion of the citizenship question, end quote, in further testimony in front of the House. Think Commerce, quote, responded solely to the Department of Justice request and that the Justice Department was, quote, the one who made the request. Well, it turns out new documents uncovered in a suit by the New York Attorney General Barbara Underwood, who's suing the administration over the addition of the citizenship question, finds that in the very, very early days of the administration, it was none other than Wilbur Ross and his top aides who came up with the idea of adding the citizenship questions. And they were the ones that went around to justice and to the DHS to see what those agencies thought about the move. In both cases, early on in the Trump administration, Justice said, we don't think it's right to raise this question, and DHS punted it back to DOJ, saying, no, we don't have an opinion on this. It's up to DOJ to decide. Um, Eventually, the Department of Justice does issue a memo saying that for uh, reasons of enforcing the Voting Rights Act better, which I think is quite flimsy given how um, little attention Jeff Sessions has paid to voting rights issues, uh, beyond quote unquote voter fraud. Um, what Wilbur Ross said is very misleading and perhaps could amount to perjury that it was in fact his idea and it was not Department of Justice that thought this was a wise move. So again, we'll see th- this could substantially undermine the federal government's defense of the citizenship question uh, come December 5th, I believe, which is when this New York attorney general's trial uh, begins. So, uh, again, a pretty seemingly a sort of a bald faced lie there from commerce describing what I think many people believe is a brazenly political act to change the census. And Wilbur Ross pretending it was otherwise remarkable. And uh, Donald Trump, uh, refugee admissions, he wants to he has apparently radically dialed back the number of refugees we're letting into this country. Yeah, bear in mind, the last year of the uh, Obama administration, we set a target of letting in 115,000 refugees. This is different from people who come to our border and apply for asylum. This is a much more orderly process where people, you know, put in their applications from overseas. Um, President Trump comes into office. Last year, we see a target of 45,000. We're actually only going to admit about 25 of that. So these targets are not even being met right now. The new target for 2018, 2019 fiscal year is 30,000. But again, gauging by the fact that we're only about 50% of our ceiling for this year, I think our, the expectation is we're going to have very, you know, a, a much lower number than 30,000 people let in over the next calendar year. And I did some interviews on this. Um, the administration will point to the fact that this is there's a backlog that they have added new security checks, and that's the reason why this is getting tripped up. The experts I've talked to say that's not the case, including the head of the International Crisis Group in the U.S., who says this is bureaucratic strangulation, that the administration relishes uh, when one agency will put up a roadblock and say, oh, you know, DHS is taking a little longer here. Everyone else is going to have to wait for us. That in the Bush administration, the Obama administration, it's the president who needs to take the lead and clear those hurdles. And quite the contrary, the Trump administration celebrates whenever there's a single sticking point within the very laborious bureaucratic process of screening refugees. And the consequences of this, I think, are more than just America's moral standing. They are that conditions for refugees abroad deteriorate when countries do not have any confidence anymore that the U.S. generally supports the resettlement of refugees and that it actually is um, domestically destabilizing to some of our allies like Lebanon or Jordan or Turkey, who are bearing a tremendous refugee burden um, when they can no longer credibly tell the populations of those countries that, hey, I know we're shouldering a lot of refugees right now, but we've got allies in the U.S., in Europe, uh, at the U.N. who are helping to move to process these refugee claims and resettle these people. Uh, when the U.S. removes that prospect of, of resettlement at the end of the at the end of the line, it, it does weaken the standing of those governments to be able to quell anti-migrant or anti-refugee sentiment in those countries. And I'll finally point out the number, the composition of refugees is changing dramatically. We have let in now more Moldovans over the past calendar year as refugees to the U.S. than Syrians. Uh, and the population of Syrian refugees as a reference point is just as large as the entire population of Moldova. So it seems- Are, Mon- sort of are Moldovans white Europeans? <clears throat> they certainly are. And President Trump loves more Norwegians to apply for refugee status. He's made his sort of racial opinions pretty well known on this matter. Yeah, 
remarkable. And North and South Korea are meeting today without Trump. What's, what's up with that? The, the big thing we should watch for probably over the next two, three days, is there an announcement of a new location and time for the second Trump-Kim meeting? That's the big role for President Moon. That's what he needs to win for Trump in Pyongyang this week. That's fascinating. Luke Vargas, The Courier on Twitter. Luke, thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. Talk to you soon. Sure enough. Uh, Luke Vargas with Talk Media News, talkmedianews.com. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Our podcasts are supported by advertising, and one of our advertisers is Harry's. By now, you probably know that I love shaving with Harry's. Nate uh, loves shaving with Harry's. In fact, everybody I know who's tried Harry's is like, whoa, this is incredible. You get an amazingly close shave with Harry's, a smooth, comfortable glide with their perfectly weighted razor. It's incredible. If you add Harry's fantastic smelling shave gel, you have the perfect recipe for the best shave you'll ever have. Harry's does all this and at a great price, too. They own their own world-class blade factory in Germany where they grind steel into sharp, durable blades that are made to last, and they pass the savings along to you. Don't confuse Harry's with those other pricey online brands that force you to subscribe. With Harry's, you can resupply whenever and however you want. Auto refills or one-off a la carte, your choice. And at just 2 bucks a cartridge, that's less than half the price of Gillette Fusion Pro Shield. For a limited time only, Harry's has a special offer for listeners of my podcast. New customers get $5 off a shave set from Harry's with the code TOM, T-H-O-M, at harrys.com. That means you get the starter set, the five-blade razor, weighted handle, foaming shave, gel travel cover, all for just 3 bucks, plus free shipping when you use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, at harrys.com. Join the millions of guys who've already switched, including me, and go to harrys.com today. Use the code TOM at checkout to claim your offer. Nathan in North Dakota. Hey, Nathan, thanks for listening to SiriusXM. What's up? Hey, Tom. Yeah, I just wanted to kind of touch base. You're saying that the tax cuts will actually lead to a decline in real wages? Yeah, they have and ever since Reagan did them. I agree with that. That might be a case in certain uh, situations, but with the economy and unemployment keep going down and down and down, companies have to compete for, for workers. You know, they've got, they're going to have excess capital that they're going to want to deploy. If they expand at all, they're going to have to hire more people. And that will push wages up, or at least maintain We gave them. corporations one and a half trillion dollars. Well, a lot of it actually went to billionaires. But we gave corporations about a trillion dollars in tax cuts. And we've had over $800 billion in share buybacks now, which is where companies reduce the amount of stock out in the marketplace in order to increase the value of the stock because their senior executives are compensated with stock. They're just taking the money for themselves. And I'm telling you, you go back and look at World War II. Franklin Roosevelt raised the top tax rate for 25%. First of all, Harding came into office in 1921, okay? In 1921... Tom, you're not disagreeing with my point. I am. I I, I am making my point. When Harding came in in 1921, the top tax rate was 91%. Harding dropped that to 25%. Wages actually went down during the Roaring Twenties. Look it up. Wealth went up, but it was stock market wealth. It was it was funny, phony baloney wealth. He deregulated the banking industry, deregulated the stock industry and brought us the great crash. But wages went down. Franklin Roosevelt raised the top tax rate to 91 percent. And from then until 1970, until 1967, it was 91 percent. And what happened? And, and even at the low end, you know, the top tax, the lower tax rates were higher than they are now. What happened? Wages steadily grew during that 30, 35 year period. Reagan comes into office. He reverses that. He takes the top tax rate, which at that point was 73 percent, 74 percent. Excuse me. That's where uh, LBJ fixed it in 1967. He ta- he drops that down to 25 percent. And what happens? Wages have been flat literally since Reagan did that. Wages go up in response. Working people's wages go up in response to taxes going up. Working people's wages go down in response in response to taxes going down. You can look not just I just gave you the history of the United States from 1900 to today. And you can and you can easily look it up. You can also look it up for any other country in the world. This is an absolute reality that Grover Norquist doesn't want you to know about. The, The only people who see more money at the end of the year, and really it, it, because it takes two or three years for these effects to become visible, because in many cases, it's not that workers say to individual or employers say to individual workers, well, you got a tax cut, you've got $2,000 extra in your, t- in your paycheck every day or every year, so I'm not going to give you a raise. I mean, certainly they don't do raises anymore in large part for that reason. But, but also, 
the main way that they lower wages is replacing people. They, re they replace a $30,000 person with a $26,000 person. And that's the trend that we've, again, been seeing since Reagan cut taxes. So, you know, this is, this is not rocket science, Nathan. On the other hand, if you're rich, which are the people who are defining tax policy, and you control your own income, as, as taxes go down, your, your extra money, leftover money goes up. As taxes go up, your leftover money goes down. And the job that Fox News and the right-wing machine has had, and the Republicans have had for the last 40 years, is to convince Americans that the same tax policies that affect billionaires will affect them the same way. And the average working people doesn't realize it's the exact opposite. It's literally the opposite. Taxes going down will cause your paycheck to go down. Taxes going up will cause your paycheck to go up over time, always. Thanks so much for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow. In the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us, including you. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. See you You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.